0: One of the most important themes in Christian literature and the Bible as a whole is the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. But flip through the pages a little bit and you'll find plenty of passages that will make you think otherwise. There are stories in the Old Testament and even some in the New where God's people seem to do violent, horrific things to their enemies in God's name. What's worse is that in many of those instances, the Bible makes it very clear that God condones or even commands it himself. How is that possible? How could the God who called us to love our neighbor be the same God who calls Israel to kill their neighbors instead? What are we supposed to do with this violent God? Out of all of these upsetting passages, the worst offender seems to be the Book of Joshua. In it, Israel goes into the Promised Land and declares war on the nations already there. We're told several times that Joshua and company leave no survivors as they go around killing the indigenous people of the land. The book seems to want us to believe that this is excusable or commendable since God told them to do it. Passages like Joshua 10.40 make this abundantly clear. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. For modern readers, in a world full of senseless war and invasion, it's really hard to make any sense of conquest narratives like these. It gets even more complicated when you have military experience yourself.
1: You know, when you're a little kid, maybe you come to faith early, you get baptized, you get this Bible, you read all these, you know, sanitized stories, but, you know, you don't ever really think in your mind about what are the ramifications of this actual, hey, I want you to go into this town and I want you to and conduct this holy war. And when you read it on First Glance, you're like, he just said to kill everything. When people kill everything today, we're like, that's genocide. <laughs> yeah.
0: Pastor Heath serves at the church I attend, where he does an amazing job leading and teaching the whole congregation. One reason he's so good at it, though, is because he's honest about his
1: struggles. This may be weird for someone to say, well, you're a pastor. I don't have it all figured out. No. <laughs> I, I, I don't. Um, I know where I'm headed. I think with that, that's still some of those passages that I struggle with.
0: Before he was a pastor, he served in the Marines, and that experience changes the way he reads these passages. Yeah, you know, there's
1: a half of me that's like, well, okay, we we uh, total war's total war. I mean, we we don't bet a night dropping a nuke on Japan. We don't bet a night firebombing Dresden. But then we come to scripture and we're like, oh, this is horrible. And it's like, well, we've done it. That means it's right, but. Um, but on the flip side, as a father of Jesus, I'm like, I'm supposed to not feel that way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we haven't even mentioned the millions upon millions of people who have been misplaced, abused, and killed due to a supposed holy war. Throughout history, people, and especially Christians, have used God's name as an excuse to do some of the most atrocious acts of war ever committed. How are we supposed to love our enemies when the Bible can be so easily used to justify evil? Thankfully, we're not the only ones asking this.
2: It's obviously some, an issue that I care about deeply and one that is really out there in the mix. This is Dr.
0: Dan Hawk, a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Ashland Theological Seminary.
2: I'm an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. And uh, so I've served the pastorate and in touch with kind of on the ground questions and issues that people have. While
0: studying in seminary himself, he became deeply fascinated
2: with the Hebrew Bible
0: and wanted to learn as much as he could about it.
2: I uh, served a pastorate for a few years. I went back, got my PhD, and got some new ways of thinking about the Old Testament. And that's kind of where my heart is, is really kind of helping the church, enabling the church maybe to to look at some old ways of thinking that may not be as helpful as they once were and and maybe uh, grab some new threads and some new frames of reference. While
0: writing his dissertation on Joshua, his colleagues challenged him to take a bold step into this very topic.
2: I was playing with the literary dimensions of it and using some different kinds of ways of looking at it. And I had friends who said, you know, you really are dodging one of the big issues here, which is which is the violence. As he began
0: studying Joshua's conquest narratives, he found that the tension people feel when reading this book had bled over into how the book was taught.
2: The main thread right now in the response to Joshua is some variation of, well, it didn't really happen. Mm. Um, And this was either the way that ancient Near Eastern people, Israel, thought of a violent God, and Mm. and so they grabbed violent metaphors, but don't worry about it, because it didn't really happen. Um, Or texts like Joshua are completely incompatible with the teachings of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Mm. One of them has to be right, one of them has to be wrong, and we know which one is wrong, so let's get rid of it. Yeah. And that just, that has always seemed to me to be a too easy end around a very complicated biblical witness.
0: I, I think either one, it kind of gives this sense of, oh, this makes me uncomfortable, so I'm just not going to touch it. <laughs> you know, whether you're, you just kind of brush it off of just like, oh, well, that's how it worked or the other alternative of, oh, well, that's made up either one. I feel like it's not really interpreting the passages, it's dismissing them.
2: Yeah, in a sense, it's, it's about our issues of trying to get God off the hook for something that mm. uh, is really, really is abhorrent to modern sensibilities, yeah. and I would say to ancient ones as well.
0: Professor Hawk has written several books since then that are about or relate to Joshua's story. One of those books was The Violence of the Biblical God, which, as you'd expect, explores the infamously gruesome parts of the Bible. As I began my research, I found the book incredibly helpful as it highlighted the nuance and community that this topic requires.
2: We want things to be really tidy. Hmm. And we don't want God to be other than what we really think God ought to be.
0: Yeah. I feel like this is going to be a reoccurring idea as we move forward in this conversation. This this podcast episode, it's not going to end with a tidy resolution. This is something that um, people have struggled with for thousands of years and will continue to struggle with with thousands more, but I think the, the main goal I, I hope here is that we can start figuring out how we can engage these scripture passages in meaningful and honoring ways to what the the original passages were trying to do it's not about solving an issue it's about actually trying to learn from these passages
2: yeah i think that's a great way of putting it Mm. really um again my 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 conviction is is that that the diversity of perspectives within the biblical canon signals the kind of reading community that reads it faithfully Mm. which is to say my my sense is that we are to read in community Mm. and that the bible uh, particularly books like joshua are are not there to give us kind of certainty about right or wrong answers but but to give us ways of thinking and talking and discerning together so that we can bring multiple perspectives to bear and figure out how we're going to live out uh, our Christian faith mm. in, in terms of, of our own, um, our own kind of times and the issues that, that face the church. Yeah. So I, I, I see communal discernment as, as a real mm. important feature
0: in honor of that communal reading, let's first dissect where exactly our biggest conflicts come from when we read about Joshua's conquest. As we began our conversation, Dr. Hawk observed that our biggest hurdles with the Bible's violence comes from the context we have living in modern
2: times. We, we, we've come out of a the 20th century, with with a lot of, of massive genocidal programs, that uh, at least ostensibly people were saying, "Well, you know, God, God is with us." One of the questions that actually uh, came about about 200 years ago, in a different way, was, and I think it's still relevant from the outside world, is, doesn't believing in a violent God produce violent followers?
0: Mm. I definitely feel that tension. I was talking with uh actually my pastor and mm-hmm. this is one of the biggest things for him that is a big struggle, especially since he comes from a military background. What extra layers <laughs> do do people get once they've actually been exposed to this kind of violence firsthand?
2: Yeah, so and I if I could I'll add another uh, another layer to that. Yeah. Um how, how do how do white uh, mm. settlers um, come to grips with uh, a narrative that says God gave us the land mm. uh, we and God gave us the ability to conquer the people who were here and justify that conquest so um, so, so American national mythology yeah and our own national narrative really comes follows the main threads of the book of Joshua even though not explicitly. Yeah. Um so how how do we read the book of Joshua as as a nation hmm. that um said God gave us the land and the violence that we used to take it was necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and and justified. So but you know we could we can go into this a little bit later mm-hmm. but uh, I just introduce at this particular point that I I think it's really important. Again, with people who have had this, ex- particularly who people who have had this experience. I have military people in my in my family, mm. um, and and it's a struggle. I mean, I I know the the kinds of issues that, that that they deal with, and and really what what you have to do. I mean, what militaries train you to do is to dehumanize. The opponent. I mm. mean, you've got to, in some way, you, somebody who bears a family resemblance, <laughs> who's a kind of a fellow human being, it's really hard to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> or to do violence. You really have to dehumanize.
0: And while you may expect that Joshua was written for the same purpose, that's not exactly true. No, this is where we start seeing a totally different way of understanding the entire point of the book because this is when Dr. Hawke said something that really caught me by
2: surprise there are there's not just one voice mm. in the book of Joshua that talks about what happened mm. this is a narrative that's woven together by at least three different ways mm. of talking about what happened and what it means so there's there's the kind of the dominant thread which is um God told us, God gave us this land and God sent us in there and we beat everyone. Um, uh, mm. there wasn't anybody who resisted us and we killed them all and we took all the land. We beat all the kings. We slaughtered mm. all the people. Now the land is ours. Um, and you've got some particular language that is associated with that particular thread, but then you have mm. another thread. Uh, so you've got all of this, um, the first 12 chapters, you've got all of this uh kind of military triumphalism. Uh we we prevailed, so on and so forth. We took all the land. And there's chapter 12 uh actually ends, kind of caps the conquest off with this list of 31 kings. Just just in case you all missed it, here are the actual kings that we defeated. Excuse me, that's in chapter 12. Then you hit chapter 13, and it's all of a sudden. God says, Joshua, you're, you're old. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a lot of land mm. that remains. I mean, it's, it's a huge whiplash. I mean, what? Yeah.
0: Like, I, I think for me, and I think this is a perfect way to kind of get into where we need to kind of change our, our approach and mm. opinions of Joshua. Because that first uh, viewpoint that you mentioned of this Very like nationalistic narrative of conquest, and of like, oh, yeah, we went in and we killed everybody. Everyone is dead. Here are all the kings that we took out because we're awesome and because God's on our side, (laughs) and it's super cool. Like, that is the narrative that I think most people read in Joshua. Yeah. You know, when you have passages like in in Joshua 10, where it straight up says, they killed all of the kings just like God commanded them. It's really hard to ignore that. But I think it's really interesting that you bring up this sense of there's another voice that's kind of coming in. And it sounds like it's almost, in a way, contradicting that first voice.
2: Yeah, I, th- they, I think that comes pretty close. And that's you are talking about how do we need to... Kind of shift the way we interpret these texts. Mm. Well, one of them I think is to is to um, appreciate the, the the particular characteristics of classical Hebrew narrative, biblical Hebrew narrative. Um, you know, we we read for information, so we read histories that that give us the information about what happened. Yeah. But Israel remembers differently, and so these narratives um, they leave a lot of holes. Intentionally, uh, they they put contradictory information up against each other because the purpose is to begin to provoke faith and reflection and thinking. And so we have to. I think we have to begin by by realizing that we're dealing with with even a different way of talk of of telling history
3: mm. that is
2: not our cultural way. But it's something that we need to pay attention to. We ought to resist the impulse. To say, well, they they need to tell their story the way we think history should be told, and they don't. Yeah. So what makes a true memory of the past? Well, every culture has its own way of answering that, and Israel's answer was different than our own. So,
3: mm. you
2: know, it, it strikes me that that reading, just reading the text mm. carefully, not dismissing these points where there are clashing perspectives, but really seeing those particular elements as part of the narrator's strategy. Mm. Again, when we had this huge, glorious conquest narrative, and then all of a sudden, just immediately, we're into a really different narrative with a Mm. lot of land that remains to be possessed. And then as we read on into Joshua from that point on, from chapter 13, Mm. we read about failures. And the Israelites could not, the, the people of, of uh, Judah could not take Jerusalem. Um, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the, the dominant tribes of northern Israel. Uh, we read about cities that they couldn't take and, and uh, in, indigenous and Canaanites who were resisting them. And, and it ends up with, with the tribe of Dan, who isn't even able to push the Philistines out of its territory, they end up leaving the land that God gave them and going up and attacking some unsuspecting city called Laish, which they name Dan after their ancestor. Mm. And so, they end up, at, at the end, not being able to take their territory and then taking a territory that's nowhere on the list or a city that's nowhere on the list of what God wanted them to take. So, it, it's just, it's arresting. Yeah. And it's that kind of, of whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. That I think is what the biblical writer, it's one of those things that I mean, part of our impulse is to say, well, we we need to reconcile this. Right. But I I think the 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 Israelite way is to say, something's going on here. I want you to stop for a minute and read carefully.
0: Okay. So to kind of unpack that a little bit more, essentially what you're saying is the expectations that we come into Joshua is very different from, say, an ancient Jewish reader, right? We come in expecting a history in the way that we frame it, where you have stories that are all historical facts, no exaggeration is allowed, no um, interpolation, Mm -hmm. I suppose, is allowed. The main goal of it is to give you data, (laughs) Um and, and that, to us, is what makes good history. Um, compare that to, it sounds like, Jewish culture during that time. The goal of, of writing like this is less so about the data of giving you facts and more so the idea of revealing truths. Is that kind of the the difference between our expectation of what Joshua was trying to do and what Josh was trying to do?
2: So I would put it this way. Mm. When we read Joshua, we're not reading history. We're reading theology in the form of history. Uh, so it's, mm. it, it's, it's important to the biblical writer that um, the writer is narrating something that happened. Mm. But this is not a um, blow-by-blow account of what literally happened on the ground.
0: It's not like security camera footage.
2: Yeah, that's right, that's right. So it's it's um it's theological reflection, and it's it's sophisticated mm. and rich. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, uh, and I, I, I think you alluded to this. I mean, most of us were taught to approach the Bible as a as a, a kind of a divine textbook that gives mm. us the information we need to believe the right things and act in the right ways. Um, but neither Testament begins with any kind of principled exposition. Um, it begins with narrative. Mm. So the, the old Testament begins with, with two versions of a common story. Um, and the new Testament begins with four versions of a common story and their narratives and narratives work differently than exposition. Mm narratives not only inform they transform they're they're experienced as as much as they're read and and um, narratives impart their truths by drawing us into a world and inviting us to walk around in that world and then come out and and see what our world looks like as a result mm. so uh, narratives carry identity but but they're slippery and they're open-ended which is not to say that 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 means we can read them any way we want because right. biblical writers very carefully shape the stories um, so that we'll know what to do with them, what they're trying to say through the story, which is a really different way than we're taught to read. And it makes a lot of people, I've discovered, uncomfortable, at least initially.
0: Absolutely, because Christians, we have a this this super deep conviction that the Bible is divinely inspired sure sure. Um, it is god breathed mm-hmm. and it is absolute truth but for us that includes all of the detail work as well again we get to that idea of history and and with joshua a big thing as you're pointing out there's this dissonance between the hyperbolic language of we We did just what God commanded and everyone is dead and that's a good thing, right? (laughs) You have the first half of Joshua like that. And then you have the second half, which is, well, that's not exactly how it went. Mm -hmm. Um, that 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 is very uncomfortable of idea. If this is supposed to be divine truth and is supposed to reveal divine truth, how are they allowed to use hyperbole and like doesn't that
2: technically make
0: it less true
2: well let, let me be right up front and say that uh I, I i myself believe in the inspiration of scripture and that it that scripture speaks the truth about who god is who we are who we are in the world so on and so forth but i think you put your finger on it with those affirmations for for a lot of people are tied into certain models and ways of reading that I don't think are terribly helpful and sometimes not really uh, connected to the depth of sophistication of this of this literature. We we just want the facts. We're in an information age. Give me the facts. But this mm. is as as we talked about earlier. This is theology. Mm. The purpose of this is not just to inform us about what happened the Israelite writers see truths in that, that past, mm. and they, they bring them out so that we'll understand, that we'll be in touch with that truth,
3: mm.
2: uh, and that we'll use that truth to guide our lives and to, gu- and to shape our vision. And, and the, third, the other piece of this is, is, is that the Bible is also a, an, an incredibly human book. Mm. It's it's an inspired book, it's a god-breathed book, but it's also a book written within the context of human communities, human cultures, human societies. And so in in a certain way the Bible I believe reflects the one to whom it ultimately points, like Jesus the Bible is fully divine and fully human and we have a problem with with that. We we we'd like to settle it on one way or another. So if you take that invitation of of Joshua at that that juncture of complete discontinuity. Mm. Um and and you begin to say, all right, what is going on here? Why, why is the language shifted? Mm. There's there's a there's a Hebrew term, uh haram, mm. uh, that is used uh to talk about wiping out. It it's it's a term with a lot of theological resonance and it ties back to Deuteronomy 7 mm. and some stuff that's going on there. But when you read that and you set Joshua within the context of ancient Near Eastern military literature, Joshua fits right in. Mm. So cultures all over the ancient Near East, when they're talking about their victories and they never talk about their defeats, when they're talking about their victories, Mm. um, it's always really inflated and it's always in these hyperbolic terms
0: This ancient context is a crucial idea to understand from here on out, as it unlocks the necessary context for us to study Joshua well. In fact, reading the book with this lens has helped clear up a lot of questions for Pastor Heath.
1: I think I kind of land on the thing of, you have to read it in the context of when it was written, how ancient history was written, um, I kind of take the tact that those verses, and some people would say, what well, says it, but I'm like, but you have to think about, say, a football game. We're like, oh, they slaughtered them all.
3: Yeah.
1: They didn't really slaughter them all. And so to me, when you read that, I think it's, um, a, the writer, it's more speaking the way ancient people spoke about language.
0: Again, this kind of hyperbolic war narrative was a common genre throughout the Near East, not just Israel. In fact, Israel is even featured in some of these other narratives.
2: So uh, my favorite example is the Merneptah Stila, where, w- which is a campaign by an Egyptian pharaoh early in the, what we would call the period of the Judges, mm. where he makes a campaign through Canaan, and then he sets up a victory monument, and he talks about all of the peoples that he destroyed and wiped out. And he said, and he it, he mentioned Israel. Mm. and. He basically says uh, Israel has been wiped out; <laughs> their future's gone; their seed is no more. Is what he says. Yeah,
0: they're 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 Which, forever erased from history. Essentially, is what yeah, he's saying.
2: Yeah, and obviously that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, and that I think that's also really interesting because that would also be very clear when he wrote it that that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that that is really interesting that you bring up this this detail of this is a very common genre of uh of writing in this time period that you know Joshua was first written in this is something that th- this audience would have been super familiar yep. with the question then becomes not what is what makes this so similar but what makes this different yeah. um because the what what is similar about Joshua compared to all of those other narratives That kind of becomes invisible for the audience because they're so used to it at this point. Of course they're going to say they wiped out everyone. Of course they're going to use this hyperbolic language. That's how these people communicated. What the audience is really going to pay attention to, and more importantly, it seems, what the author wants us to pay attention to is the intentionality in the differences. What makes this difference from those other texts? That's where we're going to find the actual point of Joshua rather than in the violence that makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. It's in the things that we don't actually usually see.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think you 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 put it really really well. Um, there's put it a different way, there's a way in the ancient Near East that you talk about your battles.
3: Mm. Uh,
2: it's just, it's, 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 it's a genre. It's a it's a mm. per- particular piece of literature. I mean, it's kind of like, for example, um watching James Bond movies. I mean, <laughs> you know, spy movies, yeah. they have a certain kind of they have a certain sequence, they have certain ways. I mean, you always you yeah. always start off with this, some kind of big chase and you have a you have a weird villain. And you get those. And people when they go to a James Bond movie, mm. they expect Oh yeah, I'm going to have that, and, 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 and so the creativity is in how you kind of use that genre. Yeah, and for the Israel and for the Israelite writers, the real difference is is in the theology. Mm. It's their use of this literature to say something about God and about themselves.
0: That that's such a helpful analogy. I, I'm a huge fan of movies, and I love analyzing them. And what does this? director have to say that's unlike anything else you know and i love when someone subverts expectations whether that's like you know you're talking about spy films you have james bond which is like the go-to the essential but then you have parodies of spy films that the humor is derived from them taking what you assume about the genre and then flipping it out on its head maybe like you know the, the spy uses a grappling hook, but it's accidentally snagged on his pants. There's like something along those lines, (laughs) you know, it's only funny because of that larger context. And it sounds like in a strange way, like, I don't know, is Joshua almost a parody of these super nationalistic glorifying things? Or obviously it's a lot more sophisticated than that, but is that kind of
2: the idea of what's happening here? Yeah, I don't. That, that's a great question. I don't see it so much as a parody. So uh, let's spin that kind of Bond thing in a different way. Mm. So uh, a Sean Connery Bond
3: mm.
2: was a really different Bond than a Daniel Craig Bond. Yeah, um, because the filmmaker is wanting to say something different that speaks to the culture of the time. Mm. So you you have to ask. Um, What's the purpose of these, of these kind of, we took it all? Mm. And it, it does say something important theologically. Mm. One of the things you'll notice when you read through Joshua is the, and, and Deuteronomy is the number of times that God talks about the land as a gift. Mm. God is going to uh, conquer the land, Israel is going to occupy the land, and God will give that land as a gift mm. to Israel for the purpose of establishing um, uh, a, a new people mm. um, un, under covenant with God. So there's a, there's a huge kind of theological matrix and a lot of threads from the Pentateuch that just find their way into completion in the book of Joshua. Mm. That, that particular text says um, repeatedly, why does this land belong to us? Because God gave us this land, and and um, we need to be the separate people that God has called us to be. Um, but then you get this other, uh, as you said, you get this other second version that 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 says, well, it didn't quite happen exactly that way. So there's a there's a more realistic history that really honors what actually happened hmm. in terms of Israel's corporate memory, hmm. and it's the and and. And that really, it, so so in that section, it's all about driving out and dispossessing, mm. which actually that language takes us all the way back to when God gives the original land promise, the conquest promises in, in Exodus and Numbers. Yeah. Uh, the language there is expulsion. Yeah. So readers would look at that and then say, okay. And, and we also realized that this was quite a struggle mm. and that we needed God all the way through. And so these two parts are saying essentially the same thing. We need to be obedient to God. Obedience to God brings us uh, into the fullness of what God has promised. Uh, and and we can't stop. We This is a continuing journey, and we need to keep going. So you've got those two, but hmm. then you've got a third voice.
0: Yeah, we, think- we haven't touched on the third voice at all yet, and I'm, I'm really curious about this. We'll get to that in a moment. For now though, let's make sure we take in everything. We've covered a lot of ground, so take a breath. We'll be right back. refresh what we've covered so far. There's no doubt that the violence in Joshua is very difficult for modern readers, but that's largely because it's written in a different genre than we expect. As we read the book, we expect a detailed history book with perfect factual accuracy and no hyperbole or embellishment. What we actually find, though, is a creative narrative that uses a historical backdrop to explore theology. It does this by retelling the same events from three different voices. The first voice is the loudest, it's the violent, nationalistic one we struggle with most. But ancient readers would have been very comfortable with it. Stylizing war victories with hyperbolic language was just how ancient Near Eastern countries wrote, so Joshua's original audience wouldn't have even given these passages a second thought. What they would have paid attention to is the second voice that us modern readers seem to completely miss. A second voice is much more critical of Israel, putting into question the blind nationalism the ancient world was used to. It challenges its readers to ask if they are still actually faithful to God and the mission He gave them. The tension between these two voices shouldn't be read as a mistake or an inaccuracy, Remember, this is a creative narrative, not a modern history book. These two perspectives were written to work together to create a more complete and nuanced point. The genre of writing met its original audience where they were, while also inviting them into a new way of looking at the world, something beyond what they could have ever thought of before. But that's only two out of the three voices that appear in Joshua. What's this third perspective? how does it add to the larger point the book is trying to make?
2: When you read the, the Joshua carefully, and again, you, you pay attention not only to what you're being told, but how that's being presented. One of the things that you discover is that there are the, the conquest narrative in Joshua begins with, with descriptions of three great battles. Mm. Um, at Jericho and Ai and Gibeon. So God wins v- big victories on behalf of Israel, and then Israel goes in and, and takes possession. But here's the thing. All of these stories are told with a kind of a cold anonymity. Mm. Uh, w- we just killed them all. Yeah, um, We took the suit. But preceding each of those three expanded accounts, and after we get... Through those three expanded accounts, it's kind of like okay, we got the program. Now we can just summarize everything and right. But right before each of those three conquest narratives, there is a, a there is a personal encounter hmm. with Canaan. Hmm. So Israelite spies um, are given shelter by a Canaanite prostitute, and she is spared uh, from the carnage, which by the way is in direct violation of the commandment in the book of Joshua that says explicit, excuse me in Deuteronomy, it says make no covenants with them. Yeah, And these elite Israelites, they do that. They're portraying their
0: nation and seemingly their God. So this is, this seems like it should be a pretty
2: big deal. Yeah. Strangely enough, God doesn't have a, doesn't seem to have a problem with it. They break the commandment. They spare it, this Canaanite woman and her family, who, by the way, puts blood on a, an opening of the door hmm. and keeps her family inside, where they uh, with with the proviso that if anybody goes outside when the killing's going on, yeah. they'll forfeit their own life. So there are resonances back to the Exodus. So here's a Canaanite, in a sense, who has her own experience of Exodus, and at the end it. Uh as Jericho is being plundered, we're told, and she's 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 there hmm. e- to the present day. So we've got this this Canaan Canaanite woman who acts more like an Israelite. She's the only yeah. one in that story that gives praise to God. She says, We've heard what God has done, and this is who your God is God in the heaven above and the earth below. She confesses Israel's God in Israel's form and the spies don't say anything about god that's so
0: interesting yeah when people read that that commanded deuteronomy what they're envisioning in that culture is go in kill everyone show no mercy and instead of that what you have is almost the exact opposite where instead yep. of killing she is acting as though she is a part of israel mm-hmm. she doesn't just get wiped out from it she embraces it for herself and becomes Functionally a part of the family.
2: Yeah. And then if you read it carefully, I mean, when we go into that story, we know who the good guys are and who the bad girl is. Mm. But by the time we've come to the end of the story, this Canaanite prostitute looks looks more like a faithful Israelite than the two Israelite spies who who aren't at all reluctant to break the fundamental commandment of God for the sake of, of, of saving their lives. Wow! You know, they basically say, you know, our lives for yours. Mm. Uh, so you've got that. And then the second story is Achan uh, right, uh, right before the, the battle at Ai.
3: Yeah.
2: And he's an Israelite who, who steals stuff from God, hides it. He's, he's just kind of a bad egg. Mm. And so we've got this good Canaanite story, and then we've got a story about a bad Israelite mm. who ends up getting a pile of rocks o- o- over his him and his family after they're killed, which makes him look like the towns of Canaan. Yeah, and then and then we've got the third story, which is right in front of the, right before the Battle of Gibeon, where Gibeonites. Um, Kind of tricked the Israelites into making a treaty with them, hmm. and all of these three stories follow the same pattern they're told in the same way mm. they're all about they follow a motif of hiding and exposure that's fairly well demonstrable. What do we do with that what's the what's the biblical narrative wanting to say through what's this voice wanting to say
3: yeah.
2: and he, where I go with it is the the narrator's wanting to draw our attention to the humanity of the people who are being killed.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean when, when once you see somebody up close and personal, you realize that they got their bad elements and they got their good elements, just hmm. like we are in other words, these stories humanize um the Canaanites hmm. and the Israelites, and when they do that. They level an implicit critique against all of these kind of, yay, we killed them. Yeah. So, so it's like, I would, say, I would say that the critique of the conquest actually begins within the conquest narrative itself.
0: That's so fascinating, because all three of those are at the very beginning of Joshua. As you're getting into this conquest mindset, you're faced with this humanity of the other, essentially.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think it's so interesting because that goes in exact uh, contrast to what you said at the very beginning, when you're talking about militaries fundamentally have to dehumanize the opponent, that the whole goal of the military narrative Is to make sure that they look as as little human as possible to you. That any resemblance to you or your family or your friends is wiped out away from you before Mm -hmm. you ever step on the battlefield. And it's so interesting because it seems like both the second half of Joshua and even these first opening conquest narratives is trying to do almost the exact opposite. It's playing into the genre of this national conquest that the ancient audience would have been familiar with. It has all the hallmarks of those um, with the same language and everything, but it's at the same time using that evil as a way to invite people into a new kind of relationship, not just with God, but now with your enemies. It th- these yeah. passages that most people see as in contrast to Jesus's command of loving your neighbor as yourself is actually where those themes in the Bible kind of have their origin.
2: Yep. Yeah, I fully, I fully, I think you've you've hit on it. I, 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 I think those threads are there, uh, and they're there throughout the the Hebrew Bible. They're there throughout the Old Testament. Mm. But again, this is a literary tradition that not only uh, values kind of gaps in reflection, but it really values subtlety. Mm. And that's why we can so easily overread or, or just not see some of these really sophisticated in this case, threads that basically say, yeah, we live in a world of powers and militaries and, you know, glorifying in themselves and the glorifying in our nation and but Let's look at the people that we consider to be our adversaries, our enemies, less than us, however you want to put that. Yeah. Uh, and what we're going to see is we're probably going to see our face reflected in the face of the other. Hmm. Um, and I think that's the kind of strain that Jesus pulls out. He, he makes explicit in his own person and his own ministry. Hmm. Um, you know, what was in a sense, Kind of hinted at and and underneath the surface and those these 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 really subtle but very powerful kind of subversive elements yeah um, you know israel is a is is a power it's a political state um, it also suffers exile, so it it has the other side of that, so Israel learns to see you know, the full dimension of violence. It's both a perpetrator and a victim. Mm. If we're reading carefully, moves us past kind of, well, this is actually what's going on. Or <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the right answer. It, you know, talk about this. So where, where in our culture today, mm-hmm. I mean, so even at this point, I mean, Christian nationalism is a, is a big deal. Yeah. How are Christians, you know, how, how do we think about this ideology? You know, our own national mythology says pretty much the same things that Israel. I mean, we we and and matter of fact, the United States from colonial times has identified with Israel. So yeah. how how do we how do we kind of think about this national narrative, which is important because it it it, it kind of expresses our identity as a people? Yeah but it's, it's full of these kind of militaristic notions and how do we need to be thinking about kind of addressing what actually happened? Mm. And thirdly, how, how do we take Israel's cue and begin to see and affirm the, the humanity of others who may not be part of our own ethnic group or part of our own community?
0: Mm. Yeah. You're already stepping into the next step for me, which is just how do we apply that wisdom that Joshua was originally trying to actually to get us to understand? And I think for a lot of people, those kind of of parallels between modern American Christianity and so many different passages from the Old and New Testament. And I think that you summarized it very, very well of just analyzing the narratives that we've told um, and the assumptions that we've made with those narratives and then comparing that to both what actually happened and how that interacts with the people in our lives that don't necessarily fit that assumed narrative. Um, I I think that's one of the the biggest takeaways for me. Along with helping us recognize the the humanity in our enemies i think it's also very clearly saying a lot about faithfulness you know how do we apply Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. passages where faithfulness is expressed in maybe not the uh maybe not ways that we should try to apply them but 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 what is this book actually trying to say about our faithfulness to god
2: Yeah, and I think you're hitting really uh, on uh, one of the main threads of interpretation in the patristic era mm. way, way back, you know, centuries ago, who understood that, that some of those violent traditions were part of the, the story mm. that led up to the coming of Christ, but did not find in those violent stories material for, sh- for, for shaping faith. Mm. And so they asked the theological question. And in their case, their answer was to make this into an allegory. So Joshua is all about, you know, what it teaches about. It teaches us about perseverance and faithfulness uh, in our own spiritual lives, mm. and getting rid of the, the, you know, the, 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 the sins and and the powers that that beset our own kind of lives. Yeah. So w- when you go through history, you you really see that the church has. I mean, Christians have had just lots of different ways of, of thinking about that. Hmm. And, I, and I look at it this way. I mean, sometimes texts are lamps and sometimes they're mirrors. Hmm. Uh, and, and both of those were common metaphors uh, in the ancient world for interpreting. Hmm. So, in other words, sometimes some biblical texts give us a way to live. They, sh- they give guidance. Here's how you, sh- here's how you should live. Here's how you should think. Here's how you should see things. But some biblical texts can function as mirrors. Um, As one patristic writer said, God has given scripture as a mirror that we might know our beauty Mm. and our ugliness. (laughs) I mean, so we need the help of scripture to guide us forward. Sometimes we need scripture to reflect back on us, uh, help us to see ourselves. I think for me right now in this time, Joshua is an absolutely crucial biblical text mm. because it reflects back on us and our world and a violent world. And it it really challenges us as a people who follow the Prince of Peace mm. to kind of think about how we've been enmeshed in the machinery of violence, the structure of violence, mm. the, the the endorsement of violence. Hmm. Um and it gives us some ways of of talking about that, but it doesn't necessarily give us a particular way to say, do this. Yeah. It 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 just lays things out so that we can think this through together.
0: Yeah. That that's a really, really helpful way to look at this. I I, I think that it kind of ties back into this sense of we want to solve Joshua right <laughs> we see this violence we see the narratives of just like god commanded he you know we wiped out all of these kings just like god commanded just you know like Joshua 10:40 says but looking at it not as a light mm-hmm. but looking as a mirror analyzing hey this makes me uncomfortable this violence this framework of how this is presented this is not okay mm-hmm. and we're, we're assuming that we're working against Joshua because it's making us uncomfortable. But it sounds like what you're saying is that sense of uncomfortability is part of the way that this book works. Mm-hmm. It's saying, yeah, that is uncomfortable. That isn't right. Are you doing that in an area of your own life? It's inviting us to yeah. not just see the, the uncomfortability of the book, it's asking us to address those same issues in our own lives.
2: Yeah. i, I We should be unsettled. Mm. That's one of the things that it does. It should unsettle us. We should be unsettled by a narrative that talks about killing and wiping out people. Mm. Um, we, we should be unsettled by realizing that that However, we decide uh, define the we. Maybe we're not the perfect people. Mm. Maybe we screw up like the spies do, and and maybe s- some of the people that that we think are less moral or less sophisticated or less or however you want to put that. Yeah. Um, maybe those people are a a, a lot more uh, faithful, mm. um, moral than we are. Yeah. For me, it just raises. I mean, you've raised some of the the, the questions. It just raises all kinds of questions. Yeah, uh, and I think that's the function of the book. Mm. I, it, it's it's like many biblical texts. It's it's not given to us to to make us feel comfortable mm. or to kind of assure us that we're okay. It's there to unsettle us because mm. we live in a world of principalities and powers and and violence we we just need uh a text like Joshua and other texts to show us what this looks like we don't want to be a part of some of that yeah how how is all of that infesting and manifesting in our lives i just think it's a crucial text
0: yeah there there's a lot of history of people misusing Joshua oh, yeah. to justified their own conquests of hatred or violence. Right. What are ways that we can start responding to that history um in a way that's yeah. actually faithful to the heart of what Joshua is saying?
2: Yeah, great great question. Well, I would say a lot of the a lot of the violence that that you've mentioned there in terms of using Joshua and imitating Joshua, read Joshua as a template. You know, so here's something to imitate. And clearly that's not what's going on here. Um, for me personally, how easy it is for me to enforce, enforce good violence that ad- advances what I want and how that clashes against what I believe are the teachings of Jesus, which mm. in a sense says our default mode in the world should not be endorsing violence. Our default right. mode we should begin with a, a, a commitment to peace, um, mm. at you know, at all costs. Um, mm. The the key for me is just to say, I mean, in light of how Joshua and other texts have been used, Christians have have throughout history been too quick to sanction violence for the sake of of mm. the advance of of Christendom.
0: Mm. Important difference there.
2: Yep. Let's let's begin by by embracing peace mm. uh, and and just letting that guide us as far as it, as as it can mm.
0: thank you so much dr hawk for coming on to the show if you're interested in continuing to explore this theme his books provide a fantastic next step
2: so the violence of the biblical god is where i deal with a lot of the questions of violence and then i've got some books on joshua and also on ruth Mm. commentary on ruth which also talks about ethnicity Mm. and talks about that in a really different way it's a it's a gentler book (laughs) much so it raises it raises some of the same issues Mm. um so and uh always always glad to to hear from folks, dhawk at ashland.edu. I, I put her away on social media every now and then.
0: All of those are linked in the show notes below. Thank you for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you like this show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player and by leaving a review. For more episodes or resources, be sure to head over to bit.ly thatwon'tpreach. Again, that's bit.ly slash thatwon'tpreach.